0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Red Mage Podcast. As always, I'd like to present the opportunity to check out my site at theredmagepodcast.com and consider supporting me on Patreon, making a purchase at the shop, or simply share this podcast with a colleague. Now, before I get into the rest of the episode, I would like to announce the development of a side project called Carmot. Carmot is a game that runs through uh, t- small teams through the design thinking process. I recently finished the first iteration, and I'm looking for playtesters to improve upon the foundations. Carmot aspires to challenge designers, makers, and innovators to design for inclusivity, accessibility, and to incorporate UN sustainability goals in their deliverables. Carmot won't officially be for sale until the third iteration of the game, but this is to ensure that I make the game affordable, versatile, and serviceable to the design community. Later this week, I will be updating my portfolio site to share information and how to sign up for test players. Now, with that out of the way, let's get down to business. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. And for others who have been following along, let me provide a little refresher because we've been through so much. (laughs) This season, I'm working on a project that explores esports as a soft case study for for extreme work conditions that result in anxiety and burnout. I followed a design thinking process, and it's very similar to IDEOs. My process comes from the HXDI Human Experience Design Interac- Interactions Master Program from CSEOB. We call it the four Ds, which are discover, define, develop, and deliver. These four phases are basically research, then identifying the true problem and defining the scope, user segments and technologies, um, moving into development, which is stating a solution, developing a feedback collection plan, audience engagement plan, and distribution plan. And then lastly, there's the deliver phase, which is actually just pushing this out there and delivering the solution, implementing all of those plans, such as audience engagement, um, feedback collection, and so forth. And currently, in this episode, we are in the define phase uh, for season two. In the previous episode we conducted an approach or suspension of disbelief to question the question in order to identify the core issue we will i use ideo's five wide methods to dig down deep and i revealed that the core issues are that we are lacking in community resources clinicians and access to services in addition our healthcare system focuses on reactive treatment instead of preventive treatment, while costs, social stigmas, policy, and accessibility act as barriers to treatment. So because of that, in order to address the core issue, we have to create a platform that takes a preventive um, approach to mental health. So today we're gonna define the scope um, of the project, user segments, and define the terms of success. I'll also be going over um, kind of like a, uh, just a really brief um, examples of user journeys. I don't usually like to do that on the podcast because I feel that it's good to always have a visual paired with um, an explanation, and that the visual is a lot more powerful in addressing touch points, uh, addressing you know how the user's feeling and so forth but for the sake of the podcast where I will provide a narrative example. Um, and I do want to address one thing. I know that uh, in season one, when I was developing for Quirkspace, there was a lot of ambiguity going around what Quirkspace was, or at least that, that first iteration of Quirkspace. Quarkspace, um, Quarkspace is, is still in the works. It is being updated, um, but there are some things I'm ironing out in terms of uh, what the platform is going to be, because uh, roleplay was a huge uh, element, but there was desire for more physical or kind of user interactions. So with that, I am going to put on my portfolio site, kind of the the list of, of everything I did during that, that thesis project um, so that people could kind of see what it looks like and then have some example videos up. But I'm also um, going to be making a lot of big changes to Quarkspace. Um, And that will be kind of pushing forward uh, a little later because this project's turning works. And on the topic of ambiguity, I'm not trying to remain ambiguous for the sake of likes reviews. The reason I remain ambiguous is because I don't know what this platform is going to be yet. And to some people listening, there's I could feel like the anxiety kind of falling, falling super hard, um, as to you know, well you're you're doing this and you don't know what it is, you don't you're not you know defining anything, you're not telling us all of this that we need for a business business model, and yeah, that's basically what I'm telling you, and the reason for that is because in the design process, we have well in our program we have a saying, I'm tired of your genius. And there's been so many instances in which we move forward in trying to address a problem only to think of a solution based on our experiences that aren't embedded in the community, that aren't really backed by research, and are more of an assumption, and to feed our ego. And those, those solutions only end up kind of hitting, like, some surface problems, and if you get lucky, you actually do hit a core problem. But that also doesn't ensure the viability of your platform. It doesn't ensure that the communities are on board, and it doesn't ensure that it's going to be um, resilient in long term, because there's ever evolving social economic changes, there's ever evolving technologies, and ever evolving relationships. Without all that that background information, um, it would be a detriment to just go ahead and say to A project um, or a solution. And while that is scary to a lot, that's why I'm kind of doing this podcast to run through all those initial stages and then actually have um, a deliverable or kind of a pitch to see how that does and have a plan for distribution and so forth. So um, let's start off with um, discussing the scope. At the time of recording this episode, please keep in mind that I'm a modest micro-entrepreneur. Therefore, I have a limited budget and limited resources. But all that really means is that the initial scope of this project, the initial scope, and I'm gonna stress that, um, really benefits from being on a, or distributed and developed in a for a small scale. Working on a small scale provides the greatest return of interest um, of investment, sorry, Um, because uh, working on a small scale allows me to reduce the cost It allows me to collect valuable data. It allows me to, to identify any potential features to build upon, add or remove. And it also allows me to kind of work in a way that I'm directly engaging with that community, ensuring that each, each step and each iteration is a lot better. And in working this way, there is a 90% chance or 90% likelihood that it's more likely to succeed within the first iteration. And what's lovely about that is if it falls into that 10%, I can always use that information, that data that I collected from the initial test and then pivot and then make something out of that that would address the initial causes that I'm trying to address. Um, so, the other aspect that we need to consider is that we're in a pandemic, um, and we are hopefully practicing social distancing, sanitation, and wearing masks. I, I will not stress that enough. Um, I don't even care if there's people that that dislike me stating that. Wear wear a fucking mask. <laughs> um, so, with that, um, you know, there's a couple things that need to. Be considered even though vac- vaccinations are rolling out. Uh, we still need to be careful because it's been stated that the virus is evolving and we're kind of just in this liminary period where we're redefining our notion of normal. Um, and that means what our relationships with technology are, um, what our social and cultural behaviors are, and how those are really rapidly changing. You know, we already see certain divisions in, in like in the media where there's people saying, put your mask on so forth, following rules. And then there's people that kind of just ignore that and violate that. Um, And that seems like a very, very lovely privilege to have, um, you know, and not having to be necessarily as cautious due to either having a vaccination or not really caring about um, people that are more at risk. Um, And I say that very saltily because it's it's just been an ongoing issue and that needs to just that just needs to get done like we all want to come out of this pandemic and get back to something that is more resemblance of our of our previous definition of normal and just with complying to these to these rules and regulations put by the cdc it would save us a lot of time but i'm not going to go off on that that's a personal matter and that's more of What's going on um, than in this project? I wouldn't even say it's a personal matter. It's kind of this a communal health issue. But, anyways, we're moving away from what's really important. And that's the development in this defined scope. Um, so, on that, you know, this, this liminary period, there's going to be so much that's kind of fluctuating and changing. And we could make some estimations as to what our relationship with technology is going to be. Um, what technologies are going to be incredibly relevant, um, and some of the social and cultural changes that are going to occur. And what's great about working on a small scope is that because there's there's still so much that's changing, um, let's say, for example, like the digital divide, that is one of the biggest problems where people that are, you know, not able to to make ends meet anymore, can't afford internet, uh, don't have access to anything, and there's really no no space that allows them to be able to engage in these online media's to apply for things that are um, essential, like such as uh, rent assistance or you know um, applying that someone is now homeless, and those are all very concerning. So if changes were to come about, and this is just a a really big if, where wi-fi was was kind of became like just public in the city where anywhere in the city you would have access to reliable internet service and we had talked about what reliable meant in the previous episode and that is definitely not 10 megabytes per second um, but something actually reliable that would be able to support uh, communities and give them access to the internet so in addition to that then becoming also having resources become digitally literate and having um, devices to be able to access internet. So let's say that's a that really big if becomes reality, um, and this system was focusing a lot more solely on t- or this platform I developed solely focused more on um, a tangible aspect um, with very little digital. So it wasn't fully kind of cross compatible um, in order to meet the needs of extreme cases. But if that very beautiful, ideal situation happened, working on a small scale, I would then be able to allocate um, funding and time into implementing features that would allow for bringing people into the digital aspects of it, um, making it fully cross battle. And again, I haven't really, I haven't def- yet defined what this platform is gonna be. We're still in the first half of the defined phase. Um, in an episode or two, we should be hitting the develop phase, where it's actually what we're making and so forth. But um, these are just examples to kind of put into perspective what to consider. So, with that, small scale really kind of allows for that adaptability and that fluidity. Um, and you know, another aspect may be regulations. And those regulations aren't necessarily going to be CDC regulations, but they may be FDA regulations for what determines um, what will be acceptable for something like uh, mental health and teleremote services as we're as we're evolving. What that will look like for remote audiences, what will that look like for rural areas? Um, will be certain initiatives that will be taking place to also help bolster that. Um, So there's a lot that would, you know, be necessary to consider and having that, you know, ability to adapt and and, and shift and and adopt new things is really important to being resilient and developing a resilient platform. So, gist of this is, a smaller scope is going to be beneficial, Um, especially since I'm starting off as just one person. And I would even argue in general, a small scope for an initial release of a platform is always the best way to go. Small-scale scopes provide a lot of valuable quality data, confirm features, and allow you to develop further iterations more efficiently. And lastly, it lets you know if you how, how fast to scale your project over time. Let's say, for example, that um, I create this platform and I'm not really sure if it's gonna need to be um, you know slowly enveloped into school systems or slowly enveloped into um, areas for artists then all of a sudden I find that artists really really need this platform and then they go ham and start developing and needing it more and want more features and then I find out that these same artists um, are suggesting it to friends over in San Francisco and those friends are, are enjoying it and they need uh, you know, like a larger, you know, I need to expand the operations a lot more because it starts kind of moving forward incredibly fast. Um, based on that, I would be able to say, okay, well, this is gonna grow exponentially. I'm gonna have to readjust when I will, what I would expect to break even and you know what that's gonna look like and how I'm gonna need to adapt for this. And I would need to bring on more um, team members immediately. Immediate, like kind of like immediate team members that would work on this, Um, also partner organizations and so forth. So that would be you know a a really big benefit, and vice versa. What if it it goes really slow, where you know I originally think it's for artists, but then it ends up being for you know solely for esports players, Um, and you know, the, in the game community. And then people are like, yeah, you know, this is what we what we need, but it took X amount of time to, to figure out where that would need to fall into. So um, in that, I would, you know, I, I discovered this in my master's program. In CSU. I'll be working with some really ma- amazing mentors. Um, and some of them worked over at Virgin Orbit, some of them worked at MC Squared, um, others were architects and some were actually design researchers in the field. Um, and all of that really kind of, all of their experience and all of their input really helped me understand, um, the benefits of working a small scale and scaling forward. Um, and I guess like what I really, really want to say is that this is going to look more like kind of a local thing because of just the conditions that we're in now. And yeah, we are opening up, but there's still a lot of uncertainty with, you know, how everything's developing and so forth. And keeping it smaller and then slowly kind of building up not only just saves me time and resources, but if it does kind of take off exponentially, you know, it's it's within my means of still being able to control it, which is great. Now, I wanted to find the space I need to work in in order to consider, you know, what communities um, I'll be engaging with and so forth. Now, in defining this this space, before I really get into that, I need to acknowledge that I am not going to be a credible messenger for every community that I want to help out. That doesn't mean that I'm restricting who's able to engage or use my platform upon the initial release, but it's really important to consider where i'm a credible messenger and am i you know where i'm coming from and kind of connecting with these um, communities individuals organizations and so forth a credible messenger is really important for two because two core reasons the first one is i'm coming from a place of empathy and I want um, the groups that I connect with and the people that I connect with to, you know, under to feel comfortable and confident that I'm someone that they can trust, and that's incredibly important. I, I'm light-skinned Hispanic. I am I'm not a very traditional um, in my, you know, with with my culture, and there is some distancing there and I need to acknowledge that. So while I want to make sure that I include um, my, the Latin community, my community, I also have to know that I would need to work with, you know, someone that um, lives in that community, ha- you know, shares certain values, shares certain experiences and can really bridge that connection. And that's really important for creating this legitimate relationship. The second thing I wanna I wanna do is um, make sure that the connection I have with these groups of people, um, that I really empathize with them, that I'm understanding their needs, their wants, their experiences, and if I'm not that credible messenger, I either need to find someone that is, or I need to kind of postpone that or find another avenue to be able to kind of um, bring bring this platform into them, you know and. This is really important because honestly speaking i'm not (laughs) like a very well-known figure if i were to go just out to a community i don't have kind of the pull that you know like uh, like blizzard would or any of that and (laughs) well there's kind of there's some drawbacks to that it's also really kind of interesting to be like yeah you know i'm not really tied to this and i can explore and iterate forward and I could just jump in these communities without having to worry that I represent a larger company. Um, and sometimes being a much smaller, kind of like personable um, organization works in, in your favor. Um, so I really hope to utilize that. And, you know, I say all this because, you know, I always design with design with the best intentions, but it's really important, really important For any business any micro entrepreneur any any large fortune 500 any org anything to understand that some communities really have a lot of hesitance um a lot of anxiety and it's a trust issue Um, people have been burnt before people may be at risk of stuff people may have not have you know they may have a certain stigma or a certain image of you know, what that is going to play out as. And it's important to address that. To ignore that is really to kind of be not only disrespectful, but it's really detrimental to both whatever organization or business or so forth and the community that they're trying to serve. And again, some strategies to circumvent this are to collaborate with leaders or um, community individuals who are credible messengers um, that are someone that you could work with and, you know, who can relate to these communities and be be that credible messenger to have them engage with your platform. And in my sense, I think that um, since I'm working by myself just for the most part in this, like, laying down these foundations and doing the research and so forth, um, and again, because I, I want to have a give to kind of, quote, well, and not make it feel just like it's really nebulous, um i i feel like it'd be better for myself in this um to work in in areas where either like i'm a native like los angeles or where i've spent time um like in long beach in long beach as a student i've been a student there uh, for about two years i'm actually graduating uh officially um in may and it is really crazy so um there are kind of postponements with the release of these episodes But it's because I'm balancing that life and and trying to organize everything. Um, But during my time at Long Beach, I've had so many amazing opportunities um, working with mentors and being able to go out and engage um, organizations, amazing organizations, such as the Century Villages at Cabrillo, um, you know, Art Council and um, the economic department over at long beach and it's it's been very enlightening and very informative and just really amazing experiences and learning so much and seeing operations on the back you know from you know that perspective really shed a lot of light and i would love to kind of like go into areas where i already feel that i have a web because that will alleviate and put more Take the burden off me and place it on the system so then that when we're developing together um all of that's kind of like taken care of by like the technologies and the systems that we have in place so at the time of recording this after saying that i'm leaning more towards long beach but i'm not ruling out los angeles um, as i move forward in this process i may pivot based on certain circumstances um, or certain organizations or companies willing to partner with me, and even potentially community responses. Um, so these are all kind of matters that I'm still kind of working out. Um, it's just a little weird in this time of Corona. Um, whereas before I, f- I would feel very confident in just kind of popping in and being like, Hey, you know, I would like to kind of share this pitch deck and, and talk to you guys, or, you know, spend time and like participate in your events. There is the remote aspect, but <laughs> kind of being burnt out from zoom um, I'm it it's it takes a toll on on you and I also don't feel that um, just relying on these virtual experiences to br- to make to make a connection is really great. Um, there was a article released by uh, Christopher Voss on negotiations. And it was about like email and, and all this. And even with Zoom, um, one of the big things is you always wanna push for that in-person negotiation. And the reason for that is because you're able to kind of feel people out, you're really able to see their body language, you're able to um, address them Make a personal connection and and really show, you know, that you have their best interests in mind. And sometimes with this technology being this this middleman, um, there's kind of like this whole thing where it's like it's another persona or avatar. Um, it's another kind of, I think, si- simulation of of you um, or a simulacrum, and is like, you know, that uh, an image of me on Zoom isn't me. It's a representation of me from a certain angle under certain lighting conditions. And, so, <laughs> you know, working in a small room, it is not the most flattering. Um, and even with, like, a virtual background, there's this sense of artificialness that goes into that. Um, working a lot with avatars, there's kind of this, like, really weird disconnect where you don't really feel that that, being that you're seeing on the screen sometimes is actually you like that's kind of like a virtual representation of you where you're kind of just showing like this really kind of like fabricated or artificial um aspect um and i and i totally understand that also in the receiving and like you know people that are that are seeing me it's just like okay like he's he's wearing a beanie he's like in and in, you know you know, a dress shirt and everything, but in all all this stuff like it's it's very it's very weird, um, and we are social creatures, so those, that's another thing to kind of take into consideration. But before I go too much into that, um, those these are all things that are kind of like culminating in there, and I am open, very much open, to connecting with organizations on Zoom. Um, or Discord, which I feel is a, a lot lot better. Um, but it's, it still won't be the same. And because I have actually have been able to go out and meet people over in Long Beach, I know what those areas and what those systems kind of look like more, and I would feel more confident in developing in those spaces um, because I, I've been spending most of my time there as a student. Whereas Los Angeles... Although it's I've been born and raised here, um, within these last two two and a half years, <laughs> you know I spent so much time in Long Beach developing and designing, and it was it's great. Um, so you know on that note, let's move into talking about user segments and who I'm developing for. So the three main segments that I'm going to be um, developing are derived from research interviews in communities where I'm a credible messenger. And I really want to stress again where I'm a credible messenger. So this um, platform I'm developing will be for creatives and it will be specifically targeting artists, designers and game developers. And I want to give a little kind of background on why I'm kind of going in that. Um, The first is I am a credible messenger to these groups, um, given my background and experience. Uh, arts design and game development are also industries that are pushing for diversity and inclusion and are starting to adopt DEI so this would be a really good opportunity to jump on that and integrate into these systems now on that note too um, you know while we started off looking at esports and we went through all these these user journeys um, you know with inter- with interviews uh, with People like Mercy, Mercy Castro, uh, Ryan Castro-Miller, um, you know, Fio. There's, there's been all these elements of stress, anxiety, um, and what these systems look like. But when we also consider that es- you know, we started off esports, I don't want to make it feel like I'm abandoning esports. And in fact, I'm, I'm really not because I'm, I'm working within the gaming industry and as eSports is kind of a subsidiary of that, or kind of a a part of that system as a whole, um, in developing for the game industry, it will present something to eSports players who are represented by companies like Blizzard or companies like Riot Um, or even independent teams. I wanna make sure that even if they're not part of that and they're still relevant to the game industry, that they're being addressed. The other thing that we know is that eSports um, has a lot of avenues from, um, you know, education, and we learn that from listening to Danny Martin, um, Jim O'Hagan, in their uh, weekly podcasts um, for the, their their projects, and which are really amazing. You definitely need to go check them out. Um, cannot stress enough how uh, exposure with Danny Martin and how Jim O'Hagan just cover some really great topics and. How esports is is a really great community building thing, um, how it's helping a lot of students and launch careers, get into STEM, and how it's really kind of addressing the engagement um, problem that that is occurring in education. Uh, and motivating students to learn and, and get engaged. So again, that's Jim O'Hagan and Danny Martin. Um, you could check them out on LinkedIn and to their their podcasts and um streams great great resources um but jumping back into that too like a lot of students are exploring esports and in developing for that game industry if i start you know putting in that avenue um that's going to start kind of like trickling down and start addressing all these all these other parts of the system that are involved with the gaming industry And through kind of addressing uh, these leaders, so let's say that I start off with addressing some indie game developers, and then they're able to kind of like land a position where they're working for a larger company. Um, Let's say Square Enix, because I I love Square Enix. (laughs) And they see that there is an opportunity to bring in DEI and implement, um, you know, access to mental health resources, and they've enjoyed my platform, they worked with it, and they want to implement it. Then that starts to start making these change, and this all kind of stems from change theory. So these are really huge kind of jumps and I- ideals, but, you know, this is kind of where I'm, I'm seeing how I can kind of get into these diverse communities and also these very... Um, large systems that cover everything that we've addressed throughout this um this project in terms of artists um why i'm addressing artists is because a lot of people that also go into the game industry are illustrators um background designers and so forth so as in my undergrad i um my, my special my my undergrad my ba was in uh, studio art, and I had the, the privilege of working with some very, very talented artists um, and really kind of connecting with some awesome student sculptors, uh, painters, illustrators, uh, and photographers. And the huge struggle for artists is there's not a lot of like funding and resources here in the United States. A teacher, really, uh, my my art teacher, Louis DeSoto, put it in a great way. He's like, when you're he's like when you're in Europe, or in Asia, you say that you're an artist, people are like enamored and fascinated because they know the importance of art and what that does, um, its meaning, its value, and you know how the artists really help shape society. When you come over to the United States and you say you're an artist you're thought of as a swindler and useless and not really a value generator because there's just such a lack of understanding of art and art education and appreciation and emphasis and what art does. But places like Los Angeles and Long Beach are very art driven cities. Um, Even when you look at Austin, Texas, uh, the rise of art uh, in Minnesota Minneapolis, like for example, um, these are all really huge cultural hubs, and art defines a very large part of community and engagement, and you know de- you know design. Um, and in a recent public project that I'm working on, um, I've learned that a lot of artists are actually gig workers. So that means that they're working um, part time or full time jobs elsewhere during the day, and are just kind of like grinding to meet to meet ends, to make ends meet and take care of the essentials and then investing that into art supplies and so forth. And a lot of these artists even know they're, so they'll be for profit, but they don't count as a small business. They'll be gallery owners, but then they're not non so they can't get certain grants. Um, there's a lot that is kind of not available to them immediately. And because of their situations, a lot of times they may not, if they're, if they're part-time, they may not have access to health care. They may not have um, as much stability or even internet connection for that sense. And there's a lot of focus on this kind of like gig work and hustle and development of art and the creation. And it's something that needs to be addressed. Artists are students. Artists are business people. Artists are Content creators, artists are, you know, in various industries, such as animation and so forth, uh, comics um, that are in conjunction with the game industry, like, let's say, for example, League of Legends, Um, they have a series of animatics that uh, are, you know, in art and design and background concept work, those are all developed by artists then in designers you have you know we're, we're creating the ui for games we're creating uh, advertisements we're pushing forth the branding we're developing strategy and marketing um, we're designing systems toys so forth and you know there's the student aspects of all of these areas of game development uh, design and art and then there's also the professional aspects in these industries where they're all kind of interconnected loosely um, and in that mind map that I that I made, um, I could see that like from esports it kind of stems out into things like education, uh, things into like games and that moves into industry and that moves into like connects to artists and all this other stuff. Again, sometimes I dislike <laughs> the podcast medium because there's no visuals to go along, um, and right now I'm a solo man team so doing a podcast and video and so forth isn't the most um, feasible for me in one go Um, but however I will be pushing forth with um, YouTube or uh, was it Twitch in the near future Um, and that's still under wraps because I'm still working on that but kind of going back to this, like with with artists, I don't want to go on a tangent again. Um, these things are very important because you see how they also scale up from education to graduating to pursuing these careers in these industries. Um, and even with with artists, it's, you know, it's a very uh, difficult and competitive realm. Designers, it's the same. And sometimes, um what happens is there's a lot of devaluing of arts games and design and that's really kind of surprising to me because of how reliant we are and all that and we can tell that we're really reliant on it because it's so invisible that we use it every day um and as games are hitting this like is it 200 billion dollar industry now um and we're enveloped in investing in AR, VR, and virtual worlds, this is you know, something that there's a lot of value in. And we see how arts and design really complement that to elevate it visually as well as experiment- experimentally and narratively and um, just kind of overall. There's, there's so much. So enough with that spiel. <laughs> now, um, again, I just want to iterate that these are also areas that are starting to adopt DEI, and I'll get a little bit more into that later. But I've broken these, these users up into three segments. These three segments uh, reflect on how users will engage with the platform, to what level they'll engage with the platform, um, and overall, how, they'll prom- how they may promote the platform. So these user segments are broken up into allies, seekers, and pursuers. So let's go into allies first. So this is an ally is an individual who has access to mental health resources, has the emotional capacity to help others, and they won't be the biggest user of the platform, but they'll be a really big advocate for it. And they're gonna help um, people advocate this platform to people who are in search of something to help them out or are in need of an immediate resource. Allies are really are going to be really good about talking and normalizing mental health as well. Now, seekers on the other hand are kind of this like middle tier. They're individuals who are starting to feel the impact of burnout and stress. Um, seekers are usually wanting to learn more about a platform um, and find something that suits their specific needs and makes them feel comfortable. Seekers have moderate uh, levels of engagement with the platform. But uh, they will use it when they need immediate relief or to kind of just help maintain and compose themselves during very hectic periods in their life. Seekers aren't, some, aren't people that would kind of discuss mental health outright um, due to social stigmas, but they will share their experiences with those that they are concerned about. and. Um, Because of the the ones that they loved, they'll they'll try to create a sense of normality during these hectic periods in their loved one's lives and help them also get resources. Um, Pursuers are the last segment and pursuers are individuals who are in immediate need of assistance and they don't have access to resources due to social economic circumstances or they're not really sure where to start, like they just kind of got thrown into this this situation where maybe before everything used to be good. Pursuers feel the effects of burnout, stress, anxiety, and they don't have a reliable support group. They may not even know where to start. They value their anonymity, and they really don't talk about therapy or mental health. They, They may see it as a sign of weakness or They may be really scared about the stigmas and how people will perceive them, but pursuers will be active advocates and users of the platform. They'll advocate it to people that they feel incredibly comfortable with and that they see are in dire need and may kind of like share or kind of promote how perhaps they've used it or what they've quote unquote heard and help others who are in dire need as well. and in defining these user segments, I want to address a couple aspects now regarding DEI, um, platform scalability. So just as a, as a reminder, DEI stands for diversity, equity and inclusion. And it is something that needs to be adopted by various industries to ensure a safe, diverse, fair and inclusive workplace for all employees. And just to reiterate what I've stated in later and earlier episodes, DEI doesn't push anyone out of the workplace or out of the picture. It does the opposite. It just opens up more space and it ensures that women, BIPOC and LGBTQ individuals get access to the same opportunities that have been traditionally given more so to Caucasian individuals. And usually those individuals are male. But again, it's not pushing them out. It's not taking anything away. It's just opening up more space Think of it like you are moving from a studio apartment to a house with a yard and a backyard and barbecue grill and a pool, and your neighbors are really awesome and give you free beer. <laughs> you know, kind of like a like a much better situation, a much higher quality of life. And you're in a safe neighborhood where everyone's totally super chill and just grills out all the time. That's kind of what DEI is for your workplace. And... DEI really is starting to look like it's going to be part of the new normal, which is great. And there's a lot of potential for DEI to impact uh, the game industry and the design industry. Um, In fact, I've seen a couple of recent posts on LinkedIn um, talking about how the game industry is starting to look at adopting DEI and implement it, and how the design industry really is pushing for that. Um, A group that I absolutely love, Eisenberg, um, has, release a listen in or I believe it's uh, what what we're what we're reading talking about no it was a it was a listen in which is a kind of this this segment where they interview and talk about really important topics to help on marketing and design uh, for creatives and, and entrepreneurs. And they covered DEI and they were they're super awesome at kind of like showing like the the benefits of it and talking about the inclusivity of it. Um, and where my platform comes in is really kind of like working with the opportunities that would be presented by DEI and individuals have, who have used my platform. And as a promotion of inclusivity and accessible, um, inclusive and accessible mental health services for the workplace. So in my interview with Tara Furiani, host of Not the HR Lady and author of Fuck Your Office Snacks, I discovered that DEI is driven by leadership. So my hope is that artists, designers, and game developers in position of leadership who happen to engage my platform, recognize the benefits and start to champion DEI in the workplace, thus incorporating either my, my platform or similar services that are offered to help address mental health issues, such as depression, anxiety, stress, and burnout. And I say, or similar services because i recognize that my my platform is not the only platform that's kind of addressing addressing this and i really care more that we're getting down to mental health services and helping people that are just burnt out giving up that everything seems hopeless and you know it's it's insane how intense this is. There's people that are struggling to find work right now, struggling to pay bills, and are just, you know, being wrongfully evicted. And myself, I've applied to, pff, Jesus, like 300 jobs. And I've gotten rejected from almost all of them. So I'm trying to shoot for a 1,000. If I land a 1,000 rejections, I'll shoot for 2,000. But it's just... You know it's insane and I'm I'm someone that has a lot of experience I'm someone that also has you know a master's degree um, and I'm struggling to kind of to get into that to find to, even an entry-level position I, I applied for like something ridiculous like um, I, I was just applied to be a receptionist somewhere I've been rejected I, I applied to be um, just kind of a helper at a library and I got rejected and it's just it's little insane like so in my sense i'm trying to just make the most of these opportunities and make something of value um, because if the systems don't support that then i need to so these are these are all things that are really kind of you know crazy and relevant and scrambling around now in regard to scalability every project i create leverages value co-creation and that means I develop alongside communities, I design um, you know, with them, um, incorporating their feedback, building um, a meaningful relationship with them, letting them kind of lead the way and inform the design. Um, and I do this to ensure that the platform and the features cater to the needs of the, the segments that I'm serving. As communities and industries also evolve and develop, as, as mentioned earlier, um, my platforms are also meant to evolve alongside them because it's constantly receiving feedback from them. It's constantly working with them and refining and iterating forward. Um, and this, this ensures that the platform is resilient, that it's addressing kind of the ways and it's foreseeing certain aspects that will, that will need to be addressed. Um, and because the communities are, are really kind of leading it, it's always kind of like they're they're in power, they have the um, autonomy and, and, and direction. I think the best way to kind of put it is, my teacher once told me, um, and this was when I got, I got really frustrated one time because I had to design something, and I was like, no, they're using it all wrong. And she, she came out and she said, look, as a world builder, when you create a world, you may be the creator of that world but as soon as you're done making it and you hand it over, you're no longer the owner of that world. You're the creator, but you're not the owner. The communities that take that in and adopt it, and the individuals that use it, and the community leaders that you know that promote it, they're the ones in control and they're the ones that that own it. You know, and that's a good thing because you're 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 empowering them and you're you're giving them that 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 autonomy and that agency um to use it and adapt it to their needs and it addresses their problems it addresses like what they need every day and that's good and as a creator you need to be okay with that when you build worlds you need to be able to let them go and you know that (laughs) it was hard at first trying to just be like "Mm." but now it's kind of like yeah you know this is this is the world I create, and I'm handing it to you. You do with you with with it what you see fit, and I'll be here to kind of help you iterate the features forward and address the needs, because it's all about solving those those core core issues to improve the quality of life, to improve humanity, to make a difference. And you know, when like let's say for example, if. You know, in terms of scalability, by evolving alongside them and by giving agency to these communities. Let's say, for this example, I'm, I'm helping um, I'm, I'm really successful in helping artists, designers, and game developers in Long Beach. And there's there's so it's it's such a relevant platform. And again, this is just an example. Not trying to say what it is or it's gonna. It is that yet. Um, I do, I do have high hopes and I, you know, that it is going to be a very successful platform and relevant, um, but in anyways, so it's, it's really successful and now I identified that, you know, I can, you know, I'm making enough, uh, re- return on interest. I'm, I'm breaking even earlier and now I could take this platform that was limited to Long Beach and I could bring it up into hitting Long Beach and Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, it takes off. And then I realized in there, San Francisco also needs this. So then I could start kind of scaling up my my production. I could start scaling up my team and dis- distribution, and that will grow nationally and internationally. So that is the goal. And that's what I'm going to do with this platform. Um, so finally, I want to start talking about defining success now that we have kind of like what, you know, what we're doing um, or what needs to be addressed, the user segments and what the scope looks like. We need to talk about success. And it's really important to define how we're going to gauge that because success can be really hard to, hard to gauge. Um, and It doesn't, it's not black and white. When you talk about success, it's more like a gradient and where we have that ideal platform you know we we have the ideal platform at the top and then we have um you know this gradient that goes down and into a place that we need to just revamp or pivot and that's completely fine so keep in mind as i'm saying this failure isn't bad failure provides a lot of valuable data that can inform and and update um, future platforms or iterations or versions of you know of where you go or even if you pivot, that information is really useful because you're learning about your user segments and about these conditions and so forth. The worst possible thing is to just be ignore it and not really taken into consideration. Um, ignoring failure and the potential of failure is really arrogant and it sets you up for the worst possible outcome. So in business failure has to be taken into consideration as a potential as a potentiality and fearing it or ignoring it is just going to destroy you the worst kind of failure is the kind that you did not plan for because it will result in a lack of being able to gain valuable insights a lack of understanding your user segments and where you went wrong and information on how to revamp your engagement plan your strategy um your pitch uh and so forth um when you when you when you plan for for a failure you're having you're creating a mitigation strategy you're knowing how you could adjust uh you're defining an acceptable range like acceptable range of failure would be like okay like this doesn't take off um so we're able because we did on a small scale uh we didn't invest that much money into it uh we You know we set up a patreon or whatever no we're gonna take it back fix what wasn't working maybe it was a branding we'll try that push it out have a plan be like okay if this branding doesn't work uh, we'll rebrand it and if not we'll look at what what the product is how it's designed and and visual and how you know we'll get samples and so forth and all of that is just kind of iterative and that's really important if you don't do that and you just kind of drop a lot of money and push it out and I've, and I've seen this a couple times um where people have like you know all this this investment into um you know a launch party and they have investment and you know they've ordered hundreds of thousands of supplies uh to to kind of for their patreon and no one's biting you're just kind of like uh ah. so all that money and investment has been kind of like just kind of gone the waste, and it's not really like you—you you don't have an, an exit strategy. You don't have um, a plan to adjust. You don't—you don't have any of that. And not planning for that failure is—it's literally going to cost you a lot more. In understanding that it's okay to fail, and knowing that hey, if this—if this doesn't go right, you know, we're only eating three percent of our cost we're collecting, um, you know, input from users to understand why they didn't want like to engage. Maybe it was a wording, or maybe it was a feature, or maybe it just really was not the right time. So then you could just say, okay, well, we'll move this over to, you know, September. And then you find out that that time was a lot better because, you know, more people were had their you know, stimulus checks and saved up all their money and things were opening up. And now people are like, yeah, you know, we want to just drop cash on, on you know things that we really need, um, so that's important to consider. Always having, um, you know, a planned mitigation strategy for failure and how to control it. Um, so in stating that, I want to get back to success as a gradient. So again, as I said it's kind of like from the top you have ideal and then you have where you either need to pivot or just completely revamp. So I'm looking at success in this kind of five tier gradient where we have ideal, great, above expectations, average, and refine. So ideal is gonna be when the platform engages audiences, if the platform engages audiences, beyond anything that could have been foreseen this platform demonstrates potential to enter the market as soon as it's kind of out, um, with plans to like use it as a framework and then be able to start just building iteratively with incredible user backing. Now the second tier is great and that's when the platform resonates with user segments. The platform demonstrates the potential to address uh, user needs and demonstrates, you know, quick marketability. Like you could put this out you know, after you get a little bit of feedback and just set it forth. Above expectations is if the platform is beneficial to user segments, it demonstrates potential to address the needs, um, but it still requires uh, additional features and adjustments before entering the market. Maybe a second or third iteration, it'll be market ready. Average is if the platform is beneficial to user segments, the platform needs adjustments to the system and interface, and there are going to be needs for additional features before entering into the market, but it's still, it's still pretty solid. It's still really good. Refine is if the platform does not meet any anticipated level of relevance to users. Very low engagement. The platform needs serious revamps to the system and interface. Uh, features need to be completely replaced. The platform is nowhere near ready for the market release. Input from users um, is necessary to make the platform relevant and address the core issues. And that's where kind of that failure strategy comes in, that mitigation strategy. So this isn't a complete crash and burn. It's just like, okay, well, this was in kind of the scope of expectations. Um, you know, and because we were able to define success and because we were able to define failure and have it in this gradient, we now have kind of like a way to be like, Okay, well we're only going to put this much into an initial release and it's going to be this big and it's going to be kind of driven in these platforms and then we're going to see. Um, We're going to offer these prizes. Uh, We'll probably order like one of each just in case uh, just to have it and you know show that and if not we take those off. uh, We make adjustments and then we start pushing forward until it gets to ideal and then yeah. So while i'm i'm shooting for for an ideal release in my first iteration realistically it might fall on either average or above expectations um and limiting the scope really just relieves a lot of that burden because it's like okay cool well you know we have a there is a plan in place and there's not going to be a lot of loss of money it's going to be a very good investment um and if pivots need to take place there is that possibility And it's all kind of just scoped out and looked out, and there's a way to iterate forward um, without being completely wrecked and going bankrupt. (laughs) So for the last part of this episode, I briefly want to go over two of the user journeys. I say briefly because, again, I feel user journeys are really best when visualized and and then discussed. And later this week, I will be upgrading the Red Mage Instagram to share findings and information. I I could feel it right now. A lot of you you listeners are thinking, oh my god, it's about time. And I agree. But I thank you for being patient with me and knowing that I'm balancing out multiple projects um, and efforts to supplement income, researching like a (laughs) madman, and independently designing and developing each and every one of these projects. Um, Such as Carmot, uh, and Quirkspace. So to keep things short, I will go over the user journey of the seeker and the pursuer. So let's start with the seeker. Imagine, if you will, there's a designer named Clara. Clara is a 28-year-old um, designer, redhead, and she is native to Los Angeles. Clara is currently working at a small um, to mid-sized company and due to the effects of the coronavirus, Clara is not really sure if she's going to be deemed an essential worker. Clara lives with this anxiety for weeks on end and finally gets called into her boss's office. Clara's boss informs her that due to the lack of business, she will have to be let go. Clara receives her last paycheck and leaves. Upon that, she's hit with this, you know, stresses of applying for unemployment, not getting, not getting responses, panicking about how much money she has, finding rent assistance, and losing access to her health care. While Claire is healthy for the most part, she is prone to have um, sporadic asthma attacks, and the inhalers that would be covered by her health insurance are now going to be full price, and they're going to have to be paid out of pocket. This additional cost is really concerning to Clara because she's already occupied trying to figure out how to pay rent, how to pay student loans, car and insurance payments, and cover all her basic utilities. While Clara is really resilient, she is human and she gets overwhelmed with a sense of dread. Clara happens to discover my platform and is able to, over time, uh, learn to manage her anxiety. While receiving help from friends and family, Claire is now able to manage her anxiety to the point where she's able to make the most of her situation and is creating a side hustle to sell t-shirts, stickers, and web assets to supplement the rest of her income that isn't covered by unemployment. Now, let's go over Pursuer. Before I get into this, I want to give a warning that this story can get a little dark. And if anyone has a trigger warning, Um, regarding suicide, thoughts of suicide, um, and extreme conditions that may lead up to it. Take a couple minutes to kind of skip this, um, or push forward about like five minutes in the episode. Um, Now let's get into the pursuer. Imagine a young man named Anthony. Anthony is a BIPOC artist living in North Long Beach. During the day, Anthony dedicates himself to his art, creating oil paintings uh, to showcase and potentially sell at art galleries. During the evening, Anthony works as a bartender and a waiter, barely making enough money to pay rent and gas. Any money that Anthony manages to save up really all goes to purchasing art supplies and basic necessities. Due to his tight budget, Anthony doesn't have a savings, he can't afford internet, and he relies heavily on his prepaid phone for all communications. And this isn't even a really nice prepaid phone. It's kind of those like $10 prepaid phones that are still flip, (laughs) nothing uh, smart screen. After the coronavirus hits, Anthony is out of a job or jobs. He can't afford materials to make art and is at risk for becoming evicted. After weeks of struggling to apply for rent assistance without reliable internet access and getting hounded by his landlord, Anthony is you know, just falling more and more and more into a state of depression and anxiety and begins to contemplate suicide. Thankfully, a family friend named Emma is able to check on Anthony and is able to help him apply for rent assistance and file for unemployment. Emma notices that Anthony doesn't look so great, and provides him with a link with a setup to my platform uh, and other accessible resources to take care of his mental and physical well-being, as well as cover any base necessities such as food and clean water. While Anthony is unwilling to admit that he needs help, he thanks Emma for these resources and begins to use them. And over time, he finally has some room to breathe again. In engaging with my platform, Anthony develop uh, Anthony develops a way to cope with his stress, anxiety, and depression, ultimately averting suicide. Now, this is where um, anyone that skipped ahead is is good. Um, so, I kind of want to talk about this with Anthony's user journey. While it's entirely, well, Anthony's an entirely fictional character, his narrative is really based on data and experiences I've discovered during my research. And I will make it absolutely clear when life comes at you, it does not hold back, and it's layers of things that all kind of culminate and hit you at once. It's not just a car payment, it's not just rent for one month. It's your car payment, it's your rent, it's your insurance, it's your health, it's your sleep schedule, it's your availability for work, it's the people that rely on you. It's you having to live with uncertainty and having all these things kind of thrown at you. Reflecting on life decisions if you're trying to do this but you're just trying to follow your dreams and it's all of these things that just kind of drop right on you. And sometimes it really feels like there's no way out. You know, where are you going to get resources? What if you're in a food desert? What if this is the first time and you don't really know what what to do, what to go on? You're kind of just green and you're left there like to flounder around. And thoughts of suicide, contemplation, anxiety, stress, and depression are no joke. In this story, I made sure that Anthony was able to get have Emma pull him out of this rut. But the sad truth, not everyone is so lucky. While many of us are really fortunate to have access to our necessities, reliable internet, and avenues for supermarket entrepreneurship, not everyone does. At the same time, in my research, I've also discovered some very beautiful stories about communities organizing and helping one another throughout this entire chaos and making the difference between someone that could pay the rent and someone that is understanding and is getting is being provided with the resources to help them out when we design for our users we really are accountable for what happens we're making something that falls into a system we're making something that educates, that utilizes, and that helps people. And if we're not careful, and if we're not taking in consideration these extreme conditions, we're designing people out. And that is a detriment. Not just to those individuals, but to society. And the burden really falls on us, as designers, to make systems that are inclusive and don't leave anyone out. Because, like in Anthony's example, it's not just one problem deal, people deal with again. Again, like, it is medical, personal, just life events, and they all hit you simultaneously. I know this isn't a really happy statement, but it's a real fucking real one. And it's the reality of these events that we have to face, that we have to design for, and you have to work together as a community to overcome. (sighs) Saying that, in my research... Sometimes it's been so kind of just emotionally straining hearing some of this and discovering some of these facts that I often have to take breaks to decompress and just maintain my emotional and psychological well-being. I do this by playing video games and recently I've been playing the original Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy 1 on my iPad. Final Fantasy and Square Enix are like it's like my favorite series absolutely what you know, nonstop. stop um, I, I will never stop fanboying about it. Um, so in Final Fantasy One, basically you create a team of four different kind of, like, heroes. You'll have, like, a mage, um, a, a fighter, um, a magician, a red mage, a, a white mage that heals. And you have to kind of make a really good balance in your team. Um, because if it's all just physical you're gonna be in for a bad time. (laughs) There has to be a balance in order to to move forward. And basically, you go through this world that is um, in disarray, curb stomping demons, and then finally spanking this bad guy who became mad and turned himself into a demon because he was rejected by a princess. And eventually, after giving him the whipping of a lifetime, you manage to restore order in the world. In playing this game, I realize that Final Fantasy One really does resonate with the with modern design and the narrative of HXCI designers. There's all this scary crap running amok, <laughs> and it takes a team of balanced interdisciplinary team to come together and restore order to the world. It's taking me some time to realize how important community is and that you can't do things alone. In my past, I always, always, always tried to carry that burden and I try to be this one man army. And even when I managed to make it through, I was burnt out and I was spent and I was just I was feeling dead. And I had just exacerbated myself. Now. While I'm laying down the foundations of this platform and running the Red Mage on my own, I'm really not developing alone. I'm developing alongside communities, and when I'm partnering with organizations, and I'm finding other talented individuals to partner with to restore order to the systems that are in disarray and broken. While I'm incredibly chaotic and working in the nebulous, I w- and I will not always have the immediate solution there is a method to my madness and there is a cause behind everything that I create that is backed by research and community. And this design process that goes off into these unknown spaces to develop, to improve, and to better just the world is really important. And sometimes I feel like the narrative in Final Fantasy I where there are these people or parties who have just gone completely berserk and are dragging our world into darkness, sometimes it just seems really hopeless, like the world is just... you know, flooded with villains. But sometimes, I take a step back and I find solace in knowing that if there are villains, then there must surely be heroes. I'll leave you with that note. So till next time, take care and stay fantastic. Red Mage out.